between, between a German train and a Lamborghini. Right? Both, both are, are preeminent, top-notch machines. I mean, you, you can set your watch by, by a German train, right? But, but a Lamborghini is also beautiful. And German trains and Italian sports cars both work incredibly well, but only one of them is, is worth letting our eyes simply gaze upon it. Now Genesis 1-1 tells us, if we can remember back for, from a few weeks, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, reminding us that God brought the universe into existence out of nothing, using only his word, which teaches us that God is fundamentally distinct from the creation. And then Genesis 1-2 reads, Now the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so here we see the condition of the earth just after God created it. But the rest of the creation narrative before us is about God changing the condition uh, of the earth in order to make earth habitable, which culminates in the creation of humanity in God's image as the chief inhabitant. Now, yet, here's the thing. God did not simply make the earth a place that works like a German train, but a place that is also beautiful like an Italian sports car. And and as we'll see, God's work of making a beautiful creation has, has actually really profound relevance for the way that we think about the world and live in it. So the main point is that God is not simply a pragmatist, but cares about what is true, good, and beautiful. God cares about what is true, good, and beautiful. And we're going to think about this in three points. God's goodness, God's generosity, and God's gifts. So, God's goodness. And this point highlights how Genesis 1 shows that God pushes creation towards beauty. God God did not forge a simply functional earth, but made a wonderful earth. And we see this progression even in the starting point of verse 2. Right, Verse 2 points to several issues about the earth that, that God addresses in the narrative in front of us. So primarily, right, the earth was formless and void, which actually, though that dominates the Genesis 1 narrative. Furthermore, no light illumines the world, and deep waters kept the earth from being properly habitable. Now, okay, so this text doesn't say explicitly that the waters covered every inch of earth's surface, although that could well have been. Uh, but it does indicate that these, these primeval waters excluded a clear distinction between land and sea. And so the, the role of the deep waters over which the, the spirit hovers 
like a bird, puts a spotlight right on the, on the two-pronged issue that the earth was formless and void, or, or, or empty, right? Void, void means empty. There wasn't stuff in it. So it didn't have form, and it was empty. Now, I imagine that most Christians have not actually thought at length about that little phrase, formless and void. But it's actually really important because it signals what God does throughout the creation days beginning in verse 3. So I need to take a few minutes just to, just to kind of pound through uh, the, the step-by-step things that happen in these verses. So give me a few minutes, and, and then we'll, we'll pull it together uh, and draw out some significance. So in, in verses 3 to 5, God shapes the distinction between light and darkness, between day and night. So God makes the world visible, okay, in, in day 1. In verses 6 to 8, uh, that we read about how God made an expanse that separates upper and, and lower waters. The, this expanse is simply the sky, okay, or atmospheric layer around the earth, if you want to put it that way. So, so Psalm 19.1 says, uh, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So that word translated sky in, in 19.1 is, is the same Hebrew word as in Genesis 1.3. Okay, so the sky from Genesis 1 is something that is still there, according to Psalm 19, despite some fantastic interpretations that you might read in various places. But to pull this together, as Reformation era and modern scholars conclude, the sky, the expanse, divides the waters on earth from the clouds, which, as even the ancients knew, are floating waters. So I think that's pretty simple. But anyway, to move on, uh, verses 9 to 13, God makes a distinction between land and sea so that the earth is no longer characterized by those those primeval deeps. And, and he covered the land with vegetation, something to adorn it, but also that has use. And the point is, right, as, we, as we've worked through the, these first three days, the point is that in days one to three, God gave the earth form. You see that? He distinguished day and night, distinguished earth and sky, and he distinguished land and sea. And he tackled this problem of a formless earth and formed it so that it had functionality, order, and even beauty. And now, I imagine you might be able to guess where we go from here, right? So in day four, God filled the sky, sun, moon, and stars. In day five, he filled the sea and the sky with fish and birds. And on day six, he filled the land with animals and humanity made in his image. So, whereas God addressed the issue of the earth being formless in days one to three by working over the world into a habitable place, he addressed the, addressed the issue of the earth being void or empty in days four to six by filling it with creatures to inhabit it. 
So there is then a, a reasoned pattern to the creation narrative that describes God bringing the world from something unusable and unattractive to something thriving and beautiful. And the creation events then show us that God made progress in developing the world. But we can, we can go further than that. When God finished giving the world form in various stages, He declared in verses 4, 10, and, and 12 that what He saw was good. And He repeated that declaration in verses 18, 20, and 25, culminating in the very good of verse 31. God wanted the world to be beautiful by being formed, by being filled, and by being good. Now, I think often we we understand that good as a moral assessment. And it does have relevance for that, as we'll see when we come to the image of God in a few weeks. But, But I think that these statements entail more here that God approved of the value and the beauty of his natural work. One of the things we see, though, is how many things God made. God found it good that creation was no longer barren, ugly, uninhabitable, and even unseen. So when God worked to form and fill the world with good things, he made sure that they were beautiful. I did that. I mean, right... Think about this with me. Isn't it amazing that God made light? Probably not something you think about, but God didn't need light to know what was on the earth. But we would. God was good in what he made for us to see. It's not, not only the, the picturesque panoramas of ocean fronts and, and, and mountain ranges, but God is good in how many colors He made. I mean, just look at this room. Right? How many colors are here? And, and even then, He did not have to make so many hues of just green. But He did. And even though he has, right, he still did not have to make the human eye full of rods and cones so that we could perceive all of those hues. But, but God is, is rich in his goodness. Our God is not a stingy God. He is abundant in everything that he does. Right, so he gave the earth beauty and made us so that we would see it. So we who are made in the image of God and God looked at the creation and saw that it was good, we should be fit to look at the world and see that it is good. God's goodness is seen in how he created beauty and he made us to appreciate it. That brings us to our second point, God's generosity. 
So the last point highlighted the principle that God's creative works aimed at making the world beautiful. God reworked the world so that Earth's first disordered condition in verse 2 became the flourishing system of of nature with all its points of, of grandeur that we know today. So God's goodness was seen in how richly he ordered the world so that it does not simply work, but it's beautiful too. The colors built into the world are a mark of, of God's generosity to his creatures so that, so that we might enjoy what God made for us. But also know how abundantly giving our God is. In that we see how God is not concerned with mere functionality, but also with beauty. So let's think about an orange, right? God could have made oranges edible and nourishing, but without taste, if he had wanted. And yet, God made this fruit in such a way as it it is one of the best sources to bestow vitamin C and is pleasing to the taste. Now, even then, okay, God could have made nourishing and tasty oranges, but they did not have to be pleasing to the eye. And yet God made orange trees so that they would be dotted with blips of color that that should deepen the richness of our experience of the material world. We live in, in a time, at least in the West, with constant access to blessings. We take things for granted and, and we easily overlook how important simple things are because they're so easy for us to get. But Genesis 1 calls you to remember the richness of your God. When you go to the shop and you walk down the produce aisle, the fruit and veg aisle, sorry, uh, you should be, you're bombarded with, with how many colors, a host of things to see. And you ought to stop and thank your God in that such a, in what it can be such a menial moment. You should thank your God for the beauty with which he has filled the earth. But God's generosity in creation does not just call us to appreciate God's character for his goodness, but it also prompts us to consider part of what it means to live as those made in God's image. God's image bearers are, as we would expect, after all we've considered so far, we are called to reflect God in his generosity. We who are made in God's image, especially Christians in God's image by Christ, need to be more characterized by giving than collecting. Now, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I, I don't want to go at your what's here. That's actually something that I think is far beside the point, and we can get at something deeper. I want to talk about your time. 
Because Genesis describes God's work of creation as taking place over the course of six days. Now, those six days are are one of the hottest points of debate uh, among Christians today. But regardless of what you think of them, all of us are supposed to learn something from Okay, so Augustine, St. Augustine, the foremost theologian of the ancient church, argued uh, in, in 400 AD that these days are figurative. Because, because, listen, this is the important bit, because God didn't need six days to create, he could do it instantly. Now, you may disagree with Augustine about those, and that is fine, yeah, but... He was right that God did not need that time to create everything that we know today. And still, Scripture describes God's work as six days. And the point is that God used time, and he used it for someone else. You see that? God didn't need the created world. God didn't need the physical universe. But if we were to be his people, we need it. And so God used time for someone else. And how often do we rush helping someone to get back to our own affairs? How often do we resent needing to invest our efforts to make something useful or helpful for someone else? And God shows us, God teaches his image bearers here that it is good and generous to work for someone else's benefit. And to put your time out there for someone else. One of the best ways you can do this, right now especially, is by not being superficial in your interactions with people, right? So I'm urging you to be generous with yourself. We live, um, and perhaps I feel this in a pointed way as an outsider, uh, we live in an an impersonal culture of sorts where we we like a, a bit of distance, But God is a personal God. And so we are free as God's image bearers to be personal and share our hardest struggles, our deepest joys, to be honest and genuine. Right? We can be generous by listening well to someone else. And we can be generous by being ready to share our real selves in conversation. Respond superficially, but but take the deep dive into someone's life and relate to them. God's generosity prompts us to be more amazed at God's goodness in nature, but also to be more generous ourselves. And so we come to our final point, God's gifts. So, the, right, there, there are two types of gifts that, uh, that this text prompts us to consider. John Calvin 
helps us think about the first by reminding us that the primary point of Genesis 1.29, where God gives the plants uh, for food, is that God is the giver of all things that we need, primarily here, food. So we should be thankful at all moments for our very sustenance. But perhaps we should be more pointedly grateful every time we eat. Praying praying blessings upon our meals is not should not be empty ritual, but it expresses dependence upon our generous God for the things that He has given to us. Right, so we can see in, in ancient creation myths, you know, that were circulating contemporary uh, with when Moses wrote Genesis, in, in these ancient creation myths, the gods created humanity as workers to find and prepare food for them. They were tired of doing the work, and so they made humans that we would go get the food for them. You see it, right? Genesis describes how our wonderful God made us and feeds us. As as an instance of how he provides for us in all ways. So think of how richly God has provided even in things like food. Right, in day three, God made lots of plants. We see that. And, and I don't mean he, he made lots in terms of quantity, but lots in terms of types of plants. And God gave humanity and animals uh, the plants to eat. Now here's the thing. God could have made one plant. Right? He could have made plain porridge as the only source of nourishment that we get. But God has made... Mangoes and coconuts and asparagus and sweet potatoes and whichever other things you like, the list goes on. And further, right, so we can, we can put that a little bit further. So, so that the emphasis on plants in verse 29 puts attention on eating fruit, right? So, so that's a foreshadow of Adam's coming test with the tree of knowledge. And so that is why, that that sort of foreshadowing emphasis is why a lot of Reformed people, including Calvin, long time ago, uh, before the modern debates we have around this text, Reformed people argue that people were actually permitted, or at least may have been permitted, to eat animals before the fall. So it is a huge problem, listen close, it is a huge problem to suggest human death before the fall because people are made in God's image, and God is life in himself. And we reflect that, and so death is not part of what constitutes or even is accidental to human nature. But animals are not God's image. And it seems that even the threat, the threat of possible human death, required Adam and Eve to know exactly what death meant. So then, uh, we can further that food point, can't we? Think about how many different kinds of animals 
God has made and how tasty they are, right? Like if you, if you go to Gulf Shores, Alabama, and you eat a fried shrimp po' boy sandwich, prawns, right? I mean, you, you know that God is good <laughs> right there in that instance. Uh, we are, regardless of, of what you make about the animal thing, we are supposed to enjoy God's creation. God made us, the, the physicality of it, within, within the realms of, of God's appointed uses, we are supposed to enjoy it. God made us from the dust of the earth, which fundamentally ties us as people to creation, which God said is very good. We cannot escape being bound to the created earth. God has not asked us to transcend createdness and to overcome the physical earth and become more spiritual as in disembodied. He's not asked that of us. He made us physical and said it was good. In the end, heaven is not finally disembodied life, but is 1 Corinthians 15 is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. God well made us as part of the, the physical world, dependent on it for so many things like food. And that is beautiful. But creation, the creation narrative, also points us to God's supernatural provision. We've seen his natural provision. It also points us to his supernatural provision in restoring by Christ even more blessings than we lost in Adam. We saw that creation was characterized initially by unformed waters, right? So coming through, though this is cool stuff. Like, if you think the Bible's boring, you... you you're not paying attention. Coming through the waters of creation. Right? Adam was put in the garden, tested, but failed. Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea. Right? Put in the promised land, like a garden, and proved faithless to the law. Jesus came through the waters of the Jordan in his baptism, was put in the wilderness to be tested and proved fully faithful. Whereas Adam and Israel received the law personally for themselves and were tested for themselves in their own obedience, Jesus was tested and succeeded for us. Only then, only then explaining our responsibilities of godliness in the Sermon on the Mount. The law addresses the Christian in our life with God after Jesus fulfilled it and passed our test for us. God's work of bringing beauty to creation by drawing Adam through the first waters points to how God restores beauty in you through the work of Christ as the waters of baptism poured on us, symbolize how Christ washes us clean from sin and helps us walk in new faithfulness.
We ought to believe in the God who was good in authoring creation. But we must trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, the author, the perfecter, and dare I say the beautifier of our faith. God, God is a beautiful God. God wanted more than a German train, but a Lamborghini, right? Better than that. He has given us a functional but beautiful world to enjoy. And even more, our beautiful God has given us a beautiful Savior and offers the certain promise of everlasting life to all who would take hold of Christ by faith. And have you done that? Is Christ your Savior by faith? If not, then all the tumults uh, that have passed through creation over the millennia, well, those are just foreshadows of the judgment that comes when our King returns. But if you were to take hold of Christ, then he promises you an endless, everlasting life filled with hope and wonder. And yet, if, if you have taken hold of Christ, then do you not see the full assurance that we have? The things that God built into creation, he has not abandoned his purposes. But in his own son, he has brought them to completion and will bring them to perfection. Not because he needed them, but for you. Let's pray. Father God, there are endless riches to this text about how you made the world. And we see today how our God has, is the brink of beauty into the world. And even as that brings us to appreciate the world around us, certainly, it points us that if the world is beautiful, then its maker must be beautiful. Only one who knows beauty can bring it about. And you know it in yourself. You have shown us, even in a small way, of how wonderful you are through the abundance that you have woven into creation. We pray, Lord, that that would prompt us to thankfulness for all that we have. Thankfulness for all that we have by nature. Thankfulness for all that we have by Christ. But that would also prompt us to consider more deeply what it means to live as the image of God. That you are the one who brings beauty into the world, into your people. Help us to reflect your generosity and how you bring beauty by being generous with ourselves and by doing what we can to bring beauty into the lives of others as well. Fill us with hope with that. Not a burden, but excitement at reflecting the grandeur of our God. And we ask these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.